Go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to the book of Ruth. Ruth, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one on a chair within reach. Definitely grab one. If you can't find one, just throw up a hand and an usher will come by. The book of Ruth is the eighth Bible, uh, eighth book in the Bible. There's only one Bible, actually. There are not eight Bibles. Uh, it is the eighth book in the Bible. After the book of Judges, before the book of First Samuel, in that precarious place in your Bible after Judges. The book of Ruth, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through this excellent book, captivating book from inerrant Holy Scripture. Uh, We've been in Ruth for about four weeks now, and we've made it to chapter four, the last chapter. Uh, We will not be able to get through the chapter this evening. There's too much going on there. Uh, Lord willing, we will finish Ruth in a very crescendo, climactic, uh, the final uh, six, seven verses or so next week, Lord willing. Ruth chapter four. Again, uh, Brian, thank you for pointing out to us the, the uh, glory of God in the life of William Tyndale. Such a, such a blessing. It's only been for a couple hundred years that we've been able to hold a copy of the Word of God in English. And men and women shed their blood for that. It was illegal. Under the, the law of the church, it was illegal, the quote-unquote church, to, to have this book in the vernacular, in your own language. Praise God for His grace. We get to study this in our time of worship as we continue in crescendo in our time of worship through the study and the systematic exposition of the Word of God. Well, have you ever been, have you ever found yourself in a hardship, in a struggle, and it just seemed to go on and on? Uh, Have you ever experienced some form of suffering And it seemed like it was never going to end. Uh, One wave crashing after another. If you've lived long enough, certainly you have. Uh, Some trial or multiple trials befalling you. And you're attempting to, to press on. By God's grace you are and it just keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming. And the night keeps going and it seems like day is never going to break. And as you continue to go, it just seems like you've reached a summit. You can see a summit up ahead in your struggle. And it just proves to be some false summit. And the trials keep coming and you're met with another summit. Part of what makes uh, the very normal experience of suffering and struggle so hard is that they don't end quickly. This is exactly what we what we see, and this is exactly what has befallen this 12th century B.C. family. That's what they've experienced as we've been studying in the book of Ruth. The main character, Naomi, was met with one storm after another. There was a famine in the land, economic, agricultural crisis. And a day before Costco's and refrigerators and freezers, moving from her home country, the death of her husband, then the death of of all her children, her her two sons who were married and left with no grandchildren. Over 10 years of this goes on and on for Naomi. 
It seemed like the suffering would never end. But for God's people, suffering will not be the last word. It will not be. Bitterness, despair, hopelessness, things that uh, the individuals in this factual story experienced, perhaps you've experienced, those things are only temporary guests in the house of God's people. And for any who would put faith in God, and who would trust in God by faith alone and not their works, and, and throw themselves on the God of the Bible, suffering will not be the last word. You may be thinking, yeah, well, my battles have been more than 10 years. That's nothing compared to what I've experienced. And they're not getting any easier. And you need to know that based on the authority of the Word of God, what we've seen in Ruth and what we see elsewhere, that the Lord sees and He knows and He cares. And there absolutely will be reprieve. And you will see it with your own eyes. And all will see it. All will see reprieve from their suffering with their own eyes who have put faith in God and come under his kind wings. And again, this is what we've, this is what we will see in tonight's text as we continue in our study of the book of Ruth. Psalm 34. Psalm 34, 17 and 18 says, The righteous cry, and the Lord hears, and, praise God for that and, that's good that he hears, and he delivers. He delivers them out of all their troubles, the Bible says. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. It's great news. Now, this doesn't mean that the Lord will end our struggles at the exact time that we want, in the exact way that we want. But it does mean they will not be forever, and there'll be great relief, great relief, unimaginable relief. You'll see it. It'll take faith and trust in God to wait patiently for the Lord, but they will end. That's what we'll see in tonight's text. We just finished chapter 3 last week. Uh, we'll, we'll go through the text verse by verse and just let the Word of God speak for itself and expound it. A little bit of background if you're just joining us. Or maybe you might be less familiar with the book of Ruth. Either way, these events took place 1200, 1100-ish B.C. in Israel during the time of the book of Judges. This is not recorded in the book of Judges. It's, it's such a magnificent thing and needed to be on its own has a different purpose, but those dark, dark days of widespread apathy and rebellion against God, when God's people had quickly forsook him, heavy cultural immorality among the people of God, reminder that after saving his people, back up a little bit before 1200s, God fulfilled his promise and he saved his people out of Egypt. He saved Israel, a couple million of them, redeems them, from Egypt, 1500-ish B.C. He takes them out into the wilderness. He, he's, for, he's, he's sort of bringing his people together. In an act of great grace, he rescued them. And as we know, there are always, there are responsibilities with grace, lest we abuse grace. And God says, and here's one of the responsibilities. Deuteronomy 28, and, and, and the, the, the book of Ruth assumes you've understood the previous seven books. Deuteronomy 28 is where God says, okay, Here's a covenant I'm making. It's sometimes called the Mosaic Covenant or the, uh, the, the Israel Covenant, the Old Covenant. If you obey me, things are going to go really well for you. The land's going to have big harvests. Uh, you're you're going to 
You're going to have children. The economy will be good. You'll defeat your enemies, these kind of things. But if you don't obey all of those things, it'll be the, it'll be the photo negative of those things. In Israel, in the time of Judges, I mean, they had hardened their heart against a good God. In truth, had become relative. That statement in Judges, every man just did what was right to himself in his own eyes. And hence the moral carnage going on. And so there's a famine in the land as the book of Ruth begins. And there's a famine. And then there's this family that God points out. The father's name is Elimelech, an Israeli family, his wife Naomi. Their two sons, Malon and Kilion. He moves and they were to stay in the land. He moves out of the land to go seek shelter in, in, in Moab, this land off to the east, who worshiped the detestable god Chemosh, where they practiced child sacrifice and different things. His, son get, his sons get wives, Orpah and Ruth. They, the, the two sons die, Elimelech dies, and that would have, the Old Testament reader would have seen that as God being faithful to his word in Deuteronomy 28 of the curses. They hear that the famine ends, they move back to Bethlehem, Bethlehem meaning the house of bread. There's some irony there. And Ruth goes with Naomi. And these two destitute widows, that was, uh, in that time, that was the, the, the worst possible place to find yourself in society because they didn't have uh, many security structures then. And so Naomi comes back and she confesses, I'm bitter. I believe in the Lord, but I'm bitter. And uh, Ruth 1.20, she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Her name meant pleasant, but call me Mara. That means bitter. But the Lord hadn't forgotten her. Ruth comes with her. There's a harvest that begins. And so the dawn of the morning is coming. And then Ruth says, I don't, I, I'm going to take a big risk. As a Moabite, they were, very, they were not loved and not liked in Israelite society. I'm going to go glean and scavenge. These kind of things were supposed to be allowed uh, in, in the Israeli society where they would, they would leave the corners unharvested so the widows and the poor could come take them. And she happens to come upon the field of this guy named Boaz, who is a distant relative of Elimelech's. And he happens to be a worshiper of the true God, a very rare thing in those days in the time of Judges. He takes her under his wing. They purposely throw uh, grain on the ground. And he says, you can stay with me for the whole harvest. But there was a problem there. Well, how are, how are these two widows going to get food when the harvest is over? Because that only lasted about two months. And so Naomi last week is thinking ahead in chapter three and says, well, maybe go see if we can overcome his girlfriend inertia because Boaz was single. And so in this incredible act, a, a risky step of faith, Ruth proposes to him. And he says, he says, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. But there and there is this, however, however, we got into some, some of the Hebrew culture, some of the laws. There was what this guy called a redeemer, who is a closer relative to Elimelech, Naomi's uh, deceased husband, than I am. He actually has the rights to Naomi's land and therefore probably to you, Ruth. And so they, they loved each other and they, and they wanted to get married. Uh, Boaz showed incredible humility by saying, you know, we're going to trust the Lord. We're not going to defy the laws and we'll see what happens. And so we were left with a total cliffhanger last week at the end of chapter three. We see this beautiful story where Ruth is using her strength, taking a total risk to be, to mock, to be mocked and potentially killed the day of the judges to get food for Naomi. Naomi then uses her wisdom to say, hey, here's how we might be able to provide for you because in those days a widow was just a young widow was a terrible place to be but there's this however there's another guy and your heart sinks 
Boaz doesn't seem to have the legal right. So we'll see what happens in the text this evening. You're not allowed to read ahead. Big idea. We're probably only going to make it through verse 13. Big idea. Just sort of theologically what we're seeing here. This is in your, um, in your bulletin as well. Big idea. Though suffering may last long, God will bring relief for his people. Though suffering may last long, God will br- bring relief for all of his people. It will come. Now, in case some of us, just a side note, might be wondering as we study this, okay, why is this in the Bible? I mean, isn't there, isn't there supposed to be lots of teaching about Jesus and, and the Bible? And why isn't there that? First, it's a great question. Second, recall that it is the Old Testament, which is God's inerrant word. God decided he wanted this in his word to be for his people, which in the Old Testament, Ruth is no exception, records his dealings leading up to and building up to the great climax of redemptive history, salvation history, which is the person and work of Christ. But like in any story, this is factual, there's a building up to it. And God doesn't give us all the details of the climax. Matter of fact, doesn't give us anything about the climax until the climax, little hints. And so we're building up to something here. There are many important details which God decided to bring in his word, give to us in his word, so we'll trust God and we'll trust that if there's an unimportant verse that the Holy Spirit would have left it out. So, verses 1 through 13, uh, through 13 chapter 4, it's going to show how things unfold with this other guy in Boaz. As far as who will redeem Naomi, take care of her, this old, old widow, and Ruth, how's this going to go? Here we go, chapter 4, verse 1. Now, Boaz went up to the gate and sat down. So, Boaz is a man of his word. At the end of chapter 3 there, he is motivated to go find out and how things are going to go with this guy who has priority over him. He wastes no time on his part. He's motivated, as he should be, to, find, uh, to, to get a good wife, Ruth. He and Ruth had this potentially scandalizing meeting in the middle of the night as Boaz slept and protected his grain pile. Ruth says, spread your wings over me, Boaz. Marry me, but he needs to go to town to settle this issue. Uh, and typically, just a little cultural detail here, typically in an ancient East town, they had two gates. There'd be an outer gate, which would defend them from enemies. And there'd be this place called the inner gate, some, just referred to as the gate sometimes, where it served as an official place for legal dealings and official business transactions, almost like a court, uh, like, like the county uh, court, as it were. And so in an, in an agricultural society, furthermore, the gate would be the place where sort of everyone would go in and out because the fields would be outside of the city gate. Boaz knows this. He's a man who's well known in the town. He acts in faith and he's headed to the place in town where he's most likely to run into this guy uh, who had legal priority over him for Naomi, her land, and so on. So he goes up to the gate. He takes a seat. And again, it's worth noting Boaz's godliness here, isn't it? He certainly wants to marry Ruth, but he is trusting the Lord more than what he feels like doing. What he feel, what he, what he feels, what what he wants. If if this is going to work, he's thinking it needs to be done legally. I'm not going to trust in myself. I'm not going to finagle details. I'm not going to connive variables selfishly to make it work out for me. That'd be hard because he doesn't know how this is going to go down. 
And even though he's even even so, he's not saying, well, this has to be a God thing. Just look at how Ruth and I feel, how Ruth stumbled across my land and how, how I want to take care of her and, and poor Naomi. This has to be a God thing. Let's just give God a little nudge and force the details. He's not doing that at all. He's trusting God to work as God wants. And at the same time, again, that doesn't mean he does nothing. He's up early in the morning. He makes a beeline to the place where things could be worked out. And so there's this balance between a surrendered, humble trust in the sovereignty of God and a diligent effort to do his part uh, in case God does present the opportunity. And so on the one hand in life, I think that's a lesson for us. We must not presume uh, proudly upon God. On the other hand, we must not selfishly expect results through inaction. We're commanded to do both. So here's Boaz, and uh, we can't even make it through half of the verse without, yet, uh, without another behold. Look at verse 1. Behold, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke, spoke to Ruth, the grain pile, he has priority to marry you and with the land, is passing by. And so he said, Boaz says, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. So we have a fourth individual introduced now into the story, and he's an interesting one. This close relative. Turn aside, friend. Now, that word close relative, it's that word in Hebrew we've been seeing over and over, goel, which means redeemer. We're going to get more into those details this evening. We've spent a little bit of time. The one about whom Boaz spoke, again, that heart-dropping moment at the grain pile, where Boaz reveals he has priority and he just happens to be coming by through the city gate. So Boaz grabs him for some ancient Eastern wheeling and dealing. And not just for, you know, a car or a chariot, but people and land. And there's a fascinating detail in the Hebrew text here, in the inerrant word of God. The, I think the New American Standard, the ESV, translates Boaz says, Turn aside, friend. But the Hebrew, there's a Hebrew word for friend, and that's not the word that's in Hebrew. The Hebrew contains two words, and they are poloni almoni. Poloni almoni sounds like a really good uh, Italian dessert or something, doesn't it? Tiramisu. Poloni almoni. But the word does not mean friend. The word has the idea of so-and-so, or what's-his-face. Is a fair translation. Seriously, it's, a, it's not the most distinguished of references to a person. What's his face? That's interesting, isn't it? There have been no what's his faces in the book of Ruth yet, have there? Even for people who only appeared for a verse or so, you know, Orpah has a name, she's gone quickly. Malon has gone quickly. Kilion has gone quickly. The people who only appeared briefly in the narrative, yet they have names. But under God's inspiration, the human writer of Ruth is very careful. He's very careful with names. But with this guy, it's what's-his-face. And certainly Boaz knew his name, right? I mean, the night before with Ruth, he says, okay, I know this guy. He sees him. Hey, you, I know you. Come over here. But he's what's-his-face. Now, in ancient East cultures, 
having a name and preserving a name was very important. You see this all over the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, for example. I mean, for better or worse, you see people trying to preserve the name. Even in Genesis 11, right, at the Tower of Babel, this big, huge city, what are they, what are they building this tower for? One reason probably is because they think, okay, if this God tries to flood the earth again, we'll, we'll, we'll survive this one. Total foolishness. Not to mention he said he would never flood it again. But what's the other reason that they're doing this? To make a name for themselves. And we go on in the Old Testament after a few million Israelites are redeemed from Egypt. There are just a few whose names are remembered. You got Caleb, Joshua, among others, who did right before the Lord. And then one of the only people to have what's called, quote, a great name, like who's not God in the Old Testament, the Old Testament king, David. So this other potential redeemer appears, but he will lack commitment, he'll lack compassion, and he'll lack self-denying selflessness towards destitute widows, as we'll see in verse 5 and 6. So he's, what's his face? Daniel Block writes of this passage, he says, quote, He may be the Redeemer, but he will shortly be dismissed as irrelevant. So there seems to be this intentional ambiguity, almost a holy disdain. What's his face? And so we're going to refer to him as that through the rest of the text, because the text does. And so he's contrasted with godly Boaz, who demonstrates this commitment, this compassion, this self-denying selflessness towards the destitute. So Boaz's name is remembered very well. We'll see that later in verse 14 and on. Of course, we have that in this book right here, that the book is this. So there's a good and there's a a right desire to be remembered, to have a legacy. That's a normal human thing. But the way to go about it is not through self-aggrandizement, through self-glory, self-preservation, self-praise. The guys at Babel tried that in Genesis 11. We know how that ended up. We don't know any of their names. No, the way to go about, by God's grace, an upright, godly legacy is not focusing so much on a legacy, but selfless submission to the Word of God. Poloni Almoni. And the Hebrew reader would kind of chuckle and grit their teeth. Verse 2. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down. So they sat down. We don't know exactly why he took ten. Uh, Deuteronomic law said that, you know, t- legally you needed two or three guys, two or three people to confirm an issue. Maybe it's because it was such a dark time and judges, customs are adjusted. But in any case, Boaz is on the move. He's well ordered. We're going to get this done. Sit down, guys. This won't take long, for better or worse. Look at verse three. Then he said to the closest relative or redeemer, Naomi, who was who's come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land. And she's destitute, which belonged to our brother, that's her husband, Elimelech, verse 4. So I thought to inform you. Hebrew, the Hebrew there says, I decided to uncover your ear. And Boaz's integrity. I'm not going to withhold any information. I'm going to give you all. I'm going to be totally up front. I'm going to have integrity. And we're going to let God just sovereignly uh, uh, decide how this works. Verse 4, so I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you'll redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I'm after you. You can see his, his eagerness. I'm on your heels. I want to marry Ruth, and I want to exercise kindness to these widows. And he said, 
I'll redeem it. So he may be Poloni Almoni. He may be what's-his-face at this point in the story. But he is still the legal redeemer. And things are tense because the future of Ruth and Naomi is uncertain. A brief word on this redeemer idea. Let's flesh this out a little bit. Just some uh, ancient Hebrew custom. Leviticus 25, 25, I'll put it up here. Uh, God lays down this law. He says, if a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor, he has to sell part of his property. This is talking about within the people of God. God wanted outsiders to see, look how kind they are, look how loving they are, look how they take care of each other. I need them, I need that God, I need, I need to be a part of that. If he has to sell his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. So this is the law given by God. Elimelech owned a parcel of land. He died years earlier, and Moab is survived only by his, his wife, Naomi, who came back empty to Bethlehem. She probably has to sell it because she's a destitute widow. The harvest season is over, no more food. And so Boaz, being this godly guy, and a, he's a distant relative of Elimelech. That's key here. He wants to redeem it, buy it back, to care for Naomi and Ruth, have a few bucks for Naomi to finish her life with. The custom also seems to be that the, young, that the younger surviving widow would be included in the land. Like she's thrown in with the land. And that, that might seem offensive to us or whatever, but that was a good thing. She too needed to be cared for. This was a social structure and an act of kindness to, be cared, to, be, to care for her. So Boaz wanted to bless both of them. He wants to marry Ruth, redeem the land for Naomi. But legally, what's-his-face has priority both in purchasing Elimelech's land and taking Ruth, hence the dealing. Now, some have concluded, some of you, if we've talked about this, that is, is this the leverate marriage from Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10? In Israel, when a husband died, it was the deceased, uh, it was the brother of the deceased, presuming he was unmarried. Okay, this is only if he was unmarried. It was his responsibility to marry the wife in order to care for the widow and continue the name of the deceased brother. And it seems that what is happening here between Boaz and what's-his-face is a little different than that. It's a sort of a culturally adapted version of the Leverate marriage from Deuteronomy 25. It's not the exact process. Why? Ruth's husband, Malon, died, but... Malon's brother, remember back in chapter 1, Kilion, he also died. So there's no brother to marry Ruth and carry on the name of the deceased brother. There's only this what's-his-face who's some kind of more distant brother of Elimelech. Boaz, also a distant relative. Maybe they're second cousins of Elimelech, we don't really know, but what's-his-face has priority. Boaz wants to care for them, hence the dealing. Again, Boaz's humble trust in the Lord So I thought to uncover your ear, Boaz says, verse 4. Full disclosure. If you want want to redeem, redeem. And so when a relative would buy the land, he would have full use of it, but only, only until he was either paid back for it or what was called the year of Jubilee. If you've seen that in the Old Testament, this year of Jubilee at that time, the land would revert back to the family member who sold its right of use. 
That's a lot of details here, but the, the, the writer of Ruth assumes we understand all that. Now, why does that matter? What's the big deal about that? Because Boaz and what's-his-face both know that Elimelech has no surviving children. So whoever redeemed the land would never have to let it go. As in the typical redeemer situation, like it would never revert back. So instead, the land would stay in the family of the redeemer. What's-his-face knows that, and he's thinking, that's a good deal. He knows that nothing was more valuable than land in those days. And he knows it's a great deal because he can pass it on to his progeny, others in his family, and it'll never go out of his family. And land was hard to come by in those days since it, it, land wouldn't be traded in the open market like it is today. It would stay within the family. And so now that the famine had passed, the opportunity to get land would be huge. That would be a That'd be like the, the deal of deals. So it's a great money-making opportunity. Your land can be used for harvesting and all kinds of stuff. It's a great opportunity for what's-his-face's family and for him. Which is probably why, I look back at the end of verse 4. <coughs> there's eagerness in his words. The, the Hebrew there, the grammar, the grammar is emphatic. When he says, I'll redeem it, it's the idea literally, I, I will redeem it. There's, there's an emphasis in it. Deal. I don't need to go home and pray about it. I don't need to go double check with my banker. He decides right there in a split second because that's how people respond to big money making opportunities that fall on their lap. And that's their chief idol. Sadly, this seems to be his highest motivation. So what's his face jumps on it. And all who have been paying attention to the story since chapter 1, when, by the time you get here, the end of verse 4, your heart sinks. Your heart sinks. Because it seems Ruth and Boaz will not end up married. It seems that all that time spent gleaning in Boaz's field, getting to know him, Boaz showing great kindness, reaching out to her and Naomi, it's finished. It's over. Because what's-his-face seems to close the deal and he'll take the land and thus Naomi and Ruth, the happily ever after that seemed to be going with Boaz is going gonna, is gonna to shipwreck and crash on the rocks of what's-his-face's hunger for a deal. However, Boaz is not going to let it go that easy. Let me give you a little more fine print here, what's-his-face. Look at verse 5. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabites, or the Moabite, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. This is interesting. Again, it's a more cultural custom. This all matters. Hang with me here. The custom then, again, this is over 3,000 years ago, seems to be that the widow of the deceased was included in the redemption of the land. Ruth, again, the widow of Elimelech's deceased son, Malon, was thrown in. The purpose is to raise up, as it says here, or to preserve the name of Elimelech. He's dead. Both of his sons are dead. The next closest one is his son's widow, Ruth. Hence, she comes to the land to keep the name. So Boaz is careful to let what's-his-face know that, by the way, 
Ruth is a Moabite. See that there? Ruth the Moabite. Again, the most, some of the most despised people to Israelites at the time. That's an interesting piece of info. But it's true and he needs to know that. So what's going to happen now? Look at the beginning of verse 6. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself. And you're supposed to say, no way. The Hebrew audience would have said, no way. With this new info, what's his face? Says, no deal. What a flip-flop. But notice what he says. Because, notice his reasoning. Because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Huh. In the Hebrew word there, translated jeopardize or impair. In some translations, it's stronger than that. It means to spoil. Or it has the idea of to corrupt, to, to ruin, to destroy, to spoil my own inheritance. Huh. And notice his use of the word I, I, my, several first-person pronouns there. I cannot redeem it for myself because I would ruin my. Shows clear enough what his chief concern, in, does, concern is, doesn't it? wasn't caring for these poor widows as Israelites were to do. It was the idol of self. Why would his inheritance be spoiled or corrupted though? We don't know exactly, but there's some hints in the text. The new info about Ruth probably has something to do with it. A Moabite in the family. That's not worth the deal, apparently. Oh, a Moabite? Uh, it's not that good of a deal, actually. Also, it's likely that if Ruth, if Ruth did have a child in his family, then that child might be considered first in the line of Elimelech, which means what's-his-face might not have the land perpetually. Either way, what's-his-face is remembered in history for his self-centered, selfish gain and lack of generosity. Towards the people of faith. And that will not do. Love your neighbor as yourself, the Torah says. So end of verse 6. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I can't redeem it. Now, not can't. You don't want to. Be honest. Poloni Almoni. In verse 4, he's emphatically interested. I, I will take it. But now the language, again, in Hebrew, it's emphatically the other way. No, no, you, you redeem it. And so we've ping-ponged between good news and bad news. And finally, there are things are ending on a high note. Boaz will redeem the land, take care of Naomi, and spread his wings over Ruth in marriage. Praise God. Suffering may last long. Very long. But for those who have put faith in God, they will see relief. Always. What a good God. The true God is, the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible, what your God, what a great God He is. He never forgets His people. As we read in Psalm thirty, the weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. 
Verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land. To confirm any matter, a man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the narrator chimes in, probably because the immediate audience is a bit removed from the time in which the events happen. We'll see that for sure next week. So there's this practice with the land. It differs a little bit from levirate marriage and Deuteronomy 25, the individual would remove his sandal to signify, I'm not going to be walking on, your, on this land anymore because it's not mine. It's not mine. And so verse 8, So the closest relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, the people who were witnessing, You are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabites, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased of his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. So in contrast to what's his face, Boaz declares his intent, his compassion, his commitment, his selflessness to Naomi and Ruth and the three deceased men. For Boaz, it wasn't just about setting his crosshairs on getting a good wife, though that's a fine desire. He wants to He wants to extend generosity to the deceased. And in that day, that was a very, very big deal. Continue their name. To raise up the name of the deceased. To show as much kindness as possible. What's-his-face tries to guard his family, but is not remembered due to his self-centeredness. Though he sought to, he seeks to avoid spoiling his line by rejecting Ruth, the outcast Moabite. Ironically, he totally spoils his line. Boaz is trying to bless others, and he's remembered. He risked it all. So end of verse 10, your witnesses today, the deal is sealed. God has sovereignly orchestrated this wonderful resolution to Naomi's emptiness. She came back empty. She's full and will be even more full next week, though she doesn't know it. Suffering won't be the last word for God's people. There will be relief. And in in such a way where sometimes we think, oh, it'd be better if I plan it. It's not. It's better if God plans it. Verse 11. All the people who are in the court, the gate there, the elders said, we are witnesses. We are witnesses. They confirm it legally. And they follow it. They followed up with this gracious prayer. Look at the prayer. May Yahweh, Yahweh is the covenant name of God, which translates to Lord, capital L-O-R-D. May Yahweh make the women, the woman, excuse me, who is coming into your home, speaking of Ruth, like Rachel and Leah, both whom built the house of Israel. Rachel and Leah, of course, are some of the most two, two most important women in the world which will be more clear next week, but in, in women in history, they're the legal wives, recall, of Jacob, and therefore the, the, the mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel, and therefore all the Israelite people, the people through whom the Savior would come, pretty important, all Jews, thus they were used of God to build the house of Israel. In addition, though, God is the God of the nations. God isn't just the God of the Jews by His grace, He seeks to include non-Jews in his loving, saving plan. In his infinite kindness. 
And the mention of Rachel and Leah reminds us of that. How? Because Rachel and Leah, like Ruth, were non-Abrahamites. They were non-Jews who departed from their families and from their villages and from their familiarities to come and to the people of God. As Ruth said to Naomi in 116, your God will be my God, your people my people. In the end of verse 11, and may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Ephrathah, an ancient name of Bethlehem, and indeed, Boaz's name would become very, very famous. That's for next week. Verse 12, Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which Yahweh will give you by this young woman. We will get more into the details next week why Perez and Tamar and Judah are included here and included again. Perez, Perez, remember, is is, uh, the firstborn twins of Tamar and became the ancestor of the Ephrathites and the Bethlehemites. And so verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Praise God. It all began with two totally destitute widows. Ruth, a total outcast, unacceptable to Israelite society, unacceptable to even worship with Israelites, puts faith in in the true God. A lowly scavenger coming to the land. She confessed to Boaz, hey, I'm I'm lower than your lowest slaves in chapter 2. And now she's the wife of an upstanding, well-known, godly Israelite. And the God of the Bible has spread his wings over her as he does with all, no matter what you're suffering in your situation, who simply put faith in him. You need to know that God is so kind. He is so kind. Psalm Psalm 91.4 says that under his wings you'll find refuge. Have you found refuge under his wings? Recall, Ruth was married to Malon and Moab for several years, however. There's another however here. And never had children. She doesn't know. She doesn't know about like the end of verse 13 when she gets married to Boaz. There's more tension. What will happen? Will the name of Elimelech and others be raised up as Boaz hoped to do? End of verse 13. He went into her and Yahweh enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Literally, it says Yahweh gave her, the Lord gave her conception. Like Abraham and Sarah, like Rebecca, like Rachel and Leah. It was the Lord who gave the gift when it looked like they would not be able to have children. And so the pregnancy is a gift of God. It is an act of God for the glory of God. Great glory that we'll see next week. And the curse, it seems, of Deuteronomy 28, the curses, part of which were infertility for the people of God at that time, Direct consequences, they're lifted. Lifted by God because delight, God delights to extend kindness to sinners. But notice more of Naomi's emptiness being filled. Not only a pregnancy, end of verse 13. The Lord, uh, she gave birth to a son. 
critical in that culture. In, in the ancient Hebrews, when they read this, they're leaping off their seat. A son, no way! This is huge. A son would carry the family name. He could carry the property. He could uh, work the land, which is in the family now. And so they would, when the ancient audience read this, the book of Ruth, and they saw that God gave a son, they would immediately see all that, and they would see, hold on a second. Something else is happening here. More than just the name being continued. I wonder what it'll be. So it begins with destitute Ruth in Bethlehem saying, okay, I just got to trust the Lord. I'm going to go out, scavenge some grain. It ends with Boaz redeeming them. Godly husband, a baby boy. But the text doesn't end of verse 13. There are two endings to the book of Ruth. So it's like a captivating book or movie where things are coming to a nice close, the problems in the immediate story are being wrapped up, the enemies are stopped, justice is brought, the problem is solved, the problem here of how is, how is destitute Naomi going to get provided for in the land, stay in the family, the, the name continue. Oh, it's all seeming, it's, it's being buttoned up all nicely, the characters barely survive, they're, they're going to have a little blood on their uniform, but they're alive, they'll live happily ever after, and as the lights are dimming, and as the curtain is being drawn and closing, it seems like things are wrapping up suddenly. The lights are turning back on. Just kidding, the curtain's opening back up. What's this? Is another ending? What could it be? And we're left with a second cliffhanger. The details which, by God's grace, we'll uncover next week. God is so good to you. Not if, but how. You might need the eyes of faith to see it. A couple of points by way of digression here, by way of application. Number one, it's normal for life to be a series of simultaneous roller coasters. It is normal for life to be a series of simultaneous roller coasters. Isn't that how it's been in the book of Ruth? Perhaps you're saying, isn't that how it is in my life? That's pretty normal. Between Genesis 3 and Revelation 20. I mean, it's been up and down, up and down, and multiple ups and downs. Naomi is down, way down in the loss of her husband and, and her sons, her childless sons. And then, then up a bit as the famine ends in Bethlehem, and then down how they're going to survive. Survive. Then up a bit as, as Ruth forsakes her comfort and potentially her life and says, I'll go glean and scavenge. Then up again as she happens to stumble into the field of Boaz. He invites her to scavenge through the whole harvest, but down again when Naomi realizes that the scavenging is not a feasible long-term solution. And up again when Ruth takes a major step of faith and risk. Boaz, will you marry me? Up again he agrees. Down when there's this other guy. Down again when what's-his-face says, deal. But up. When he backs out. Isn't that just a normal picture of life? And it's not just like one roller coaster, it's like three, ten. So you have eight things going on that are up and down at the same time. 
That's a picture of life this side of heaven. The point of that isn't to be a Debbie Downer, but just to be realistic so that we could put faith in God and trust him and trust this great God. Earth is not heaven, newsflash. And it's God's kindness that life isn't always continually thunderous clouds here. He does give a little daybreak, but it's a series of simultaneous roller coasters lest we get too comfortable here. And think, oh, this is the end of the matter. Adrian can be merry for tomorrow we die. Unless we forget that God is our security and heaven is our home, provided we put faith in Jesus Christ. Number two, the path, God's blessing, is not self-preservation, but self-denial. The path to God's blessing is not self-preservation, but self-denial. And that's not to say self-denial for selfish reasons or for abstract moral reasons, but self-denial for the glory of God. Self-denial in order to obey God's commands and to serve others. It's not always our instinct. And though it sometimes seems like the best and the wisest thing for maybe me or my family is going to be self-preservation, do what's best for me, but we've seen the opposite in the historical account of the book of Ruth, haven't we? It starts with Ruth. Major step of self-denial to, to abandon all her social securities of her Moabite home, her Moabite family. To go with Naomi, who can provide nothing for her. Yet because of her faith in God, God provides for her. That's self-denial. Then to go glean in the field, that's self-denial. To go to Boaz in chapter 3, it's self-denial. How did that work out for her? It's self-denial that God ended up leaving her hanging? Oh, sorry. By God's grace, it's the way of blessing. And with Boaz too, associating with providing for a Moabite who can offer him nothing, that's not self-preservation. And what's-his-face tries to guard his family and isn't remembered because of his self-preservation and his self-centeredness. He, saw, he thought to avoid spoiling his, spoiling his line by rejecting Ruth. Ironically, it goes the other way. Boaz denies himself to bless others, and he is remembered. The path to God's blessing is not self-centeredness or self-preservation. It's self-denial for the glory of God. You can trust God. That's not going to be your knee-jerk reaction, hence walking by faith. trust him and of course we have our greatest example of that is christ stepping out of heaven was an act of massive self-denial for him living life here where he should have been worshiped by every person every second living under the law massive self-denial going to the cross where the penalty and the consequences for all of our violations against god and thought word and deed are placed on him he's sentenced for our sin to say, Father, I will do that for them. That is massive self-denial. And he's at the right hand of the Father now. And he's saving a people for himself. Self-denial. And number three, finally. Though suffering is great, God's people will see relief. It might take you some extra faith and hope and focus on God to keep that in mind if, it, if you've been like me at times. 
Though suffering may be great, God's people will see relief. And that certainly is the story of Naomi's life. 11 years of tragedy, death, loss, bitterness. Don't call me Naomi, call me bitter. Ruth also, losing her husband, childless, nothing. A place where she'd be scorned. The way, the the suffering was long. But God brought it to an end. Psalm 34. The righteous cry, the Lord hears, and he delivers them out of all their troubles. That all, that matters there. I, I hold on to that word all there. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted once again. Saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 37, 34. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. Wait. And he'll exalt you to inherit the land. And Naomi certainly inherit the land and will inherit a lot more. Have you felt as if your, your battles are just never ending? God promises that if you're his child, your own eyes will see permanent relief and in a great way. Naomi and Ruth could not have scripted what would happen here, nor verse like 14 to 22. When they got to heaven, it's like, what, that happened too? But this is only for God's children. It's very important to, 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 to keep that in mind. Are you God's child? You can become God's child by faith alone in Christ alone. The Messiah who has come, and we see that this side of uh, the cross. We cannot work ourselves uh, into becoming God's child, and nor is God asking us, okay, work your way into high enough moral standing to become my child. No, no one can do that. His standard is absolute, infinite, holy perfection, and no one can achieve that except Christ. And so Jesus did the work in our place, again, stepped out of heaven, lived that life that none of us could live, lived perfectly up to God's infinite holiness, infinite goodness, infinite purity and thought, word, and deed every second of his life. And then he died on the cross, taking the sentence for our sin. And he rose from the dead to prove indeed that my sacrifice is acceptable. And that's your assurance that by faith in him alone, you are a child of God. You're a child of God by faith in him alone. Not on ourselves. You're forgiven. You're justified. And as God's child, one of the great benefits, forgiveness, right standing with God, God will always bring resolution to the suffering of his children might have to wait. He doesn't always reveal the details of how he's going to do that. That pushes us to hope and to faith and to trust God. But suffering will not be the last word. Let's pray. Father, thank you that suffering is not the last word. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Death nor life, nothing, any created thing will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father. And thank you for your goodness in this historical, factual account in the life of Naomi, Ruth, Boaz. Thank you for showing your greatness, how suffering isn't the last word. 
I pray if there's any of us in here this evening who are not yet your children and don't yet have this promise, Holy Spirit, would you reveal that and make it clear and may we put faith in Jesus Christ to be, to be born by the Spirit, to know the forgiveness and the assurance of the Father. Let us all go out this week with the hope and the joy of you, O oh God, in our hearts. No matter what kind of affliction or suffering we face, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.